0: Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I'm going to read you a very strange passage of Scripture, and that's going to lead us to an even stranger passage. Reading out of Genesis chapter 44. And in verse 33, now then please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, exclamation point. Do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Lord, as we unpack this scripture and others here today, I pray that we not only have understanding, Lord, but application into our lives. Guide us in this conversation, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We are in a series, have been for quite some time, on the book of Genesis entitled The Origin Story. And for those of you who thought that you would spend eternity in this series, um, we will be actually concluding in about three weeks' time, and so we're, we're bringing this to Uh, a certain point here, and today I want to talk to you as the origin story unfolds, the study in Genesis, about the unexpected choice, the unexpected choice. This passage I read, we'll we'll get to in a moment, but you have to understand a lot more before you can grasp that, and um, a big part of this is found in one of the strangest sections in scripture that we're going to find. It's very abrupt, it's very unusual, and it's very rarely talked about, let alone taught on. You see, in the 37th chapter, we have, first of all, Abraham, who, who has Isaac, who then has Esau and Jacob, as we talked about, and there's a favoritism there to Esau over Jacob, but Jacob is the one God chooses, and there's a pattern of God choosing not the firstborn, but the secondborn, or, or those that you wouldn't think of. Jacob's name is changed to Israel after encountering God. He goes ahead and he has 12 uh, sons. One daughter, actually, too. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel that we hear about. Now, one of those that was a big favorite of his was named Joseph. And we'll talk about him in the following weeks. And most of you already know a lot of the story of that, you know, because you know the whole Disney thing and the Technicolor coat and all that stuff, right? So this is what's really interesting here, though, is that The 37th chapter introduces Joseph and spends some time with him. We see him being a favorite again, the favoritism thing that Jacob bore. Um, He now continues on, even though he was a victim of it. He now makes his other sons the victim of it, and Joseph is his favorite. That's why he gives him this specially brilliantly colored coat that was so expensive. So he makes him a favorite, and the, uh, the rest of the guys, sibling rivalry, don't like that too much. So at one point in time, they take him um, when they see him out there and they they toss him into a pit and they're going to uh, let him die there. Uh, Instead, someone makes a suggestion, critical to our story here, why should we do that? Let's make some money off this guy. There's a bunch of slavers going by and so they sell him into slavery to some Ishmaelites who in turn sell him into slavery into Egypt. And so the 37th chapter has Joseph And he gets to Egypt and then it abruptly stops. The story picks up again in the 39th chapter. And he's in Egypt, and we have the rest of the story unfolding, eventually getting us to verse to chapter 44 that we just read. But between 37 and between thirty-seven and thirty-nine is the thirty-eighth chapter, and, and Joseph's nowhere there. Someone else is introduced. Why? This makes no sense. It's, some people refer to this as a zone of turbulence when you come across the scripture. You're going along suddenly, smoothly, and then suddenly something changes, and then it picks back up again. And so there's this zone of turbulence that, that encompasses chapter 38. Now, in order to get there and understand this, we need to go back even further. So stay with me today. We'll make this quick, but we're going to cover incredible lot of around here. We mentioned that Jacob, at one point in time, has left home, and he finds a wife in Rachel. At least he wants, to be, uh, wants her to be his wife. It's his uncle Laban, and he has two uh, daughters. One is Leah, and the other one is Rachel. And the scripture says that, that Leah was weak of eye, and Rachel was comely and beautiful. Now when it says weak of eye, that translates in a lot of different ways. What it doesn't appear to mean, though, is that she had an eyesight problem that she couldn't see right in the sense of vision because it's compared to the beauty of Rachel. And so it appears that Leah had maybe an eye condition, but it implies that she was not near as attractive. I could use other terms, but let's just say not near as attractive as, his, as her sister. It could be that her eyes were crossed. could be that they protruded in some way. Um, one way or the other, Leah was not a desired individual as far as people who are looking on the outside and the external. So when Jacob comes along and he sees Rachel, he goes to his uncle there, Laban, and says, Laban, what will it take for me to marry uh, Rachel here? And uh, Laban has a very interesting statement to make. He says this, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man, so stay with me. And he makes a deal that if you work for seven years, he implies that he'll have Rachel. But his actual phrase is, it's better for me that she should go to you than some stranger. So Jacob, who's been a deceiver and a con man his whole life, and, and let's be clear, anybody who holds the name of Jacob, I think your parents had high hopes for you in giving you that name. Don't take that as a shot and don't take that as a bad way just because of what it meant originally. Jacob himself becomes someone of significance in history. So, my best friends are named Jacob. Okay? But Jacob, at this point in time, is still pretty squirrely. And he's a con man. And then he comes across Laban, who's had a lot more experience at conning than anybody else. And so, fine, I'll work for you for seven years, and I get Rachel. So seven years go by. Things continue on. Now it's time. And so they have a wedding feast. Now the wedding feast in those times would have lasted about a week long and would have involved much wine. So you can imagine that after a couple of days of this, people are not exactly seeing straight or thinking straight. Somewhere in that process, the bride is brought in, and she would have been veiled. And so um, they're brought in. He's got Rachel finally, he's eager, he's a little bit, you know, befuddled. He's we go into the dark tent, and they have their moment of time in their evening. And the scripture says this: But when the morning came, behold, it was Leah. It's kind of like surprise. Seven years you work. Seven years, you make money for this guy. And then you wake up in the morning and it's not who you worked for. It's Leah. Goes to Laban, what, what have you done here? And, and Laban reminds him, check the fine print, dude. I never said yes. I just said better for you than someone else. So he's been ripped off. And he says, okay, what do we do now? Laban says, no problem. You're doing really good. How about another seven years and then you're gonna have Rachel. And so seven more years go by and he finally gets the woman he wants. And that could be an interesting story by itself. But What happens in this moment is that due to the greed and manipulation of these two deceiving men, Leah, this poor woman, is thrown into hell. She's now married to a man that doesn't want her. In addition, she has her own sister in competition with her. For the affections. Little side note here: the scriptures we mentioned a ways back in Leviticus that, that talk about the the problem of homosexuality or bestiality or or sacrificing children to Moloch—they're all in a line there. Just two passages above that, it also says, "Don't take your wife's sister to bed while she's alive. Don't do that. Don't marry her." There's all sorts of guidelines that we're supposed to follow. So he violates that. They end up spending the time together and and, and they come along and, and and let's be clear some people are in marriages that they didn't want to begin with. Um, there's a lot of people that have that that, that that it's not the right person but but Leah she's put into a particular twisted dark moment. Now having children in those days was a significant um, indicator of God's favor to people it was it was something that 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 in the economy of that time was prized highly by the women as well too. And so, as time goes on, there's a point in time in the scripture when um, it says in chapter 29 when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel, her sister, was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. She called his name Reuben. Reuben means I'm seen. It's heartbreaking what's going on here if you're tracking it real close. This first child, now I finally have presented a a son, a very, very son to my husband. Maybe now I'll be seen. No. It goes on, she says, because the Lord has looked at my affliction for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me a son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon means I am heard. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name will be called Levi, which means I'm attached. So this poor woman in this circumstance being overlooked so heavily, she's hoping now I'll be seen. Maybe now I'll be heard. Maybe now finally, finally my husband will love me and we'll become attached. And each time, something doesn't happen and she's still left alone. She has a fourth child we find and here something twitches. She's caught with not being seen or heard or attached to anyone. It says in verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son and said this time, she separates it This time, I will praise the Lord. And therefore, she called his name Judah, which means praise. And then it says, then she ceased bearing for a while. So there's a cap on this moment. So the first four kids that come to Jacob is not from the wife that he treasures and loves and beautiful and all the rest. The four children that he gets, the first four sons, comes from Leah, who's rejected, not seen, not heard, not attached But somewhere in the process, something changes in Leah and she stops trying to seek her fulfillment in her husband and she seeks her fulfillment as we talked last week in God and she decides, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to turn my my gaze upward. And Judah's born. There's a whole message that often is offered in just this passage alone. And for those of you today that are feeling um, unseen, unheard by those around you, detached from emotions and relationships, that you feel isolated and separated, that maybe you even feel that God himself does not hear you, you need to understand that he does, that you are seen by your heavenly father, that you are heard, that he desires to have you attach yourself to him, to look for your blessing from him, to begin the process of praise and turning your gaze upward. And for some of you, that alone is the message today. But that doesn't quite get us where we need to go to understanding why this chapter 38 is thrust between 37 and 39. But I've led you partway down the path because now of these four old sons, we're gonna find that God doesn't just bypass the first one and go to the second as is often the case. He's gonna bypass one, two, and three and go to number four. Completely unexpected, completely out of sequence. Judah begins to play a significant role. Judah, incidentally, just so we have a context for his character and nature, when Joseph is 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 then tossed into the pit by all the guys, and they're gonna let him die there. Judah is so cold-hearted as to sit here. Reuben, the older brother, goes away, and he's gonna come back later and try and get him out and get him back and save him, actually. But while he's gone, the guys are sitting there having lunch around the pit. Judah says, hey, there's some slavers over there going by. Why shouldn't we make some money off this deal? So he is so cold hearted that he doesn't even think death is enough. He is the one that leads all the other guys in selling Joseph into slavery and getting him in Egypt. Now sometime after this, for some reason, Judah leaves home. He leaves his family and he settles in a new place. And this is what we find inserted into 38. So you've got Joseph and you've got Joseph. And then, smack dab in the middle of this, suddenly out of nowhere, Judah's story comes into play. We find that he's gone into a new place and he's taken a woman as a wife from the various pagans that are there. He's not living in the ways of God. He doesn't use women well. We don't even know the name of this woman. She's not even referenced as a name. But we do know that he has three sons, and the first one is strangely named Ur. Hey, Ur. Where you at, Ur? Kind of like Ur. Kind of like a motor that couldn't quite get started. And so Ur comes along as the oldest boy, and we don't even know what's going on with Ur. All we know is in the scripture it says, but Ur, Judas firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. He just axed him right out of the picture. We don't know what. Now, a lot of this stuff may sound strange to you that we're talking about, but this was part of the reality of that culture in that time. So Ur struck down. I, I should mention that before this, he was actually married Though beforehand, that, that, that Judah had gotten a wife for him, a woman named Tamar. So Ur's married, but he struck down before having any children. So now Tamar is alone and widowed, and in those days, it was important that you had children. They were your social security system. There was a lot with lineage and, and heritage, but it also meant that they could provide for you. And so a woman who was a widow at that point in time and not a virgin no longer, could, could, was really her prospects were slim. And so there's a system that had been established, weird by our standards, but appropriate for the time with low population and, and the culture of the time, that if if my brother dies before having children, that I am now, along with my own wife, now to take her as a wife, and that any children that come out of that though are raised in his name and get his inheritance and take care of her. It's a way of, of caring for her as well as honoring the brother in place. Strange by our sights, but that's what it's supposed to be. So the next brother steps up, a, a guy named Onan, Judah's second son. Because Judah instructs him, got this is your job here, this is a responsibility. So he goes and he, he has relations with her, but he exercises the method of birth control to make sure it doesn't happen. You can look it up in a dictionary somewhere. And so the end result is they don't have children either and he's doing this as a rebellion against his father, as a rebellion against the law, God, everything else. And so God strikes him down and he's killed. Now at this point in time, Judah's lost his two top sons and there's been a common denominator in the whole thing. They were both married to Tamar. There's a story ways back that I heard of uh, a woman's husband who'd been slipping in and out of a coma for for several months, but she'd stayed by his bedside every single day. And one day when he came to and was conscious, he motioned for her to come over. And as she sat by him, he whispered with eyes that were full of tears, we're told. She says, Martha, you know what? You've been with me through all the bad times. When I got fired, you were right there. When my business failed, you were there too. When I got shot, you were by my side. And, and when we lost the house, you were right there. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. You know what, Martha? And the poor woman says, what, dear? Martha, you're bad luck. <laughs> now again, another messed up male projecting things onto a woman. And that's exactly what Judah does. He's sitting here going, Tamar, you are bad luck. I don't know what it is with you, but I've had two boys marry you and I've had two boys die. Whose responsibility was that? Who was responsible for teaching those boys the ways of God? Who's responsible for teaching them the various things that would have had that death avoided? But he pushes it off on Tamar. And so what happens, he said, look, at you, you you go back to your father's house and remain a widow there until uh, my younger son gets of age. And when he's old enough, then uh, you know, we'll, we'll get you married and get you taken care of and we'll, we'll fulfill that obligation. But he's lying. He has no intention of fulfilling that responsibility at all. This is Judah. This is the one who sold his brother into slavery. This is Judah. This is the one who didn't instruct his sons in the ways of God. This is the one who left home and is going his own way and making his own fortune. There's a point in time when uh, Judah's wife dies. He mourns for a bit, but then he's kind of like, you know what, uh, ready to get back in the old cycle of, of what I used to be doing before. And so they're gonna have a sheep shearing. They're gonna have a time of celebration, bringing in the sheep and getting all the shearing, and there's gonna be sales, and a lot of time there's drinking and other things going up. He's going up for the party. And in Genesis 38... Verse 13 through 19, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to shear a sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Eniam, a town there, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, the third son was grown up, and she'd not been given to him in marriage. She knew that she was gonna be cheated, that she was being lied to and deceived. And here's where it gets interesting. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she'd covered her face, which was common for a prostitute to do there. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. He did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Those veils are getting everyone in trouble. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Okay, but that was the thing in those days. But he didn't have a goat with him at the time. He said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, He said, what pledge shall I give you? She said, your signet, your your stamp with a unique thing that would have marked you as authority, and your cord and your staff, the things that marked his identity and his authority that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she rose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of widowhood once again. And he goes on his way. What kind of character is Judah who sells his brother to slavery? who runs away from the things of God, who doesn't instruct his sons, and now he's laying with a prostitute. Well, here's where it gets even more interesting because he then gets his friend to say, hey, take this young goat. There's a temple prostitute on the side there. Pair off and get my stuff back. And he goes and can't find her. And he asks around, there's been no temple prostitute here. Don't know what you're talking about. So he goes back and 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 now Judah's really got a problem. And, and he's, his shame is befell. But he's like, you know what? Let's just cover this up. Let's forget about it. I made my try. Uh, we'll call it quits. And she buried, he buries what he, he thinks is his shame. But in verse 24 and 26 of Genesis 38, this chapter that's lost in the middle of Joseph's story and narrative, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. This is the guy who was winning to a prostitute. This is the one who didn't instruct his sins. This is the one who was going to toss Joseph into slavery and in fact did. Rear out and let her be burned. And be careful who you ask to get burned. Sometimes you might find you're the one who gets burned in the end. So she's being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. That had to have been a chilling moment. <laughs> Burner, she's a witch. Uh, whoa, she's pregnant by whoever had these things. Not only is his shame not buried; it's now uncovered, and he's face to face with his own doom. He identifies them, and he says this in verse twenty-six: "She is more righteous than I." since then I did not give her to my son, Shayla. And interestingly enough, he didn't know her again. The three things that signified his identity is in her hands. He's the one, though, now that stands condemned, not she. He is the one who has something to be ashamed of, not her. He says, she is more right than I. And he never has sex with her again. He doesn't take advantage of his position and status for his own gain, but instead respects Tamar and provides for her as family from that point on. Something in that moment of time in that moment when he faced his own failure and says, she is more righteous than I, something about that when he didn't kill her to cover it up, when he didn't lie any further, but when he embraced who he was and says, she's more righteous than I, and he respects her at that point, something in that moment transforms for Judah. Something of repentance takes place in that moment of time. And it changes the entire nature of who Judah is. He becomes the leader of the family. He moves back home and reengages with the family. And even though he's the fourth child, he somehow becomes the leader of the family. In fact, so much so that when Jacob is about to die and is giving his blessing to the 12 boys... he gives the same blessing that he stole from his brother Esau and that his father Isaac gave to him. He now bypasses one, two, and three sons and goes to Judah number four. So in Genesis 27, we read that Isaac said to Jacob, be Lord over your brothers and may your fa- mother's sons bow down to you. But in Genesis 49, at Jacob's death, he says to Judah after bypassing one, two, and three, and he blesses them, but he, he gives them like, things like, you're messed up, you're messed up, and you really screwed this up. But then he goes to four and he gives a blessing. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The same blessing in essence. And he calls him a lion and he calls him a ruler. Something has changed in Judah. After abandoning his family, he comes back. He becomes basically someone who initially had had not trained his children, had been involved with a temple prostitute, had, had given up personal things of identity and authority to feed his own carnal, selfish nature. But now something has changed in this man. The family now becomes something of significance, something of import. This passage is injected here for a very specific reason. Because when things pick up at the back end of where we're going here, the boys are are back in Egypt. They're, they're, they're coming now to Joseph, and they don't know it's Joseph. They don't know that it's him that's in charge of everything. And, and they're wanting to get some food because there's a famine in the land, and, and they have several different things, and Joseph doesn't reveal himself. Now, is he playing with them or not? We'll discuss that later. But he doesn't, he doesn't reveal himself. And he keeps playing with them, and then finally he says, if there's another son, bring him too. And so... They bring another son and and Jacob, after Joseph left, Jacob continues the same pattern of favoritism only now it's Benjamin, the youngest of them all who's born in his old age. And both Joseph and Benjamin were Rachel's kids. Just another shot. And so he's brought to this moment and Joseph conspires to get Benjamin in trouble in essence. And so... It's discovered, it's brought out, and he's saying, oh, he did something wrong. We're going to hold him here. You guys go back, but we're holding him here. And the implication is there's a dire situation for Benjamin. And so now the brother who sold this one into slavery, who didn't train his own children, who engaged in prostitution, who ran from God, finally has faced himself, sees who he is, and and repents before God. Now something has changed in his character. This same man now is replaying the scenario. Another beloved son of his father from another mother, not his own. But something's changed in Judah now. And so when he has the opportunity to walk away from it all and just lose another favored brother, that's where we find ourselves in chapter 44. As he says, not knowing it's Joseph, he says, now then, please let your servant, me, Let me remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Something has changed from Judah where family meant nothing to now he's willing to sacrifice himself. Something has changed in the nature of Judah. And then here's where it even gets a little bit more bizarre. Not the firstborn, not the secondborn, not the thirdborn, not the children of the favored mother, but the children of the despised one. The fourthborn, Judah, is the one through whom the line descends. Tamar has twins, and one of the twins' name is Perez. And as we look in Matthew chapter 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Judah's line is through whom Jesus comes. Why is this bizarre Passage thrust between the story of Joseph. Joseph, who is is the most wonderful character you're gonna come across. He's like Jesus. Literally, he's thought to be a type of Jesus, a type of Christ. He does everything right. I mean, the guy is amazing. And, and we see that. And he and he's here and he's here, but in the middle, Judah's thrown in the middle of that. Why? Judah's a mess. Judah doesn't care about family. doesn't care about God. He cares about himself and his own appetites. It's kind of like being at a wedding, and, and you're at the wedding, and everything's dressed up, and everything's celebrating. Everything's wonderful. And then your best man, your brother, shows up, but he's a stumbling drunk, and he's, he's got his old ripped clothes on. He's like, hey, are we partying today here? Let me tell you about the family. Here's a couple of secrets you didn't know about. And everyone's going, oh, my God. Somebody, shh, please get him out of here. Right in the middle of this beautiful story of Joseph is Judah. There's a commercial. Charles Barkley, the NBA player, six foot six, 250 pounds. He's standing with three or four other little kids, like 13, 12, 10. And there's two other kids, a girl and a boy are choosing and it's that, that choosing for a game. You know how that goes. You know you're, you're going to choose, and when it's done, there's always one left over. And, and and if it was you, you're sitting here going, "Oh, I don't want to. I'm going to be the last one again." And what's really bad is when they don't say, "Yeah, I'll take you." It's more like they're debating. No, you take him. No, I'll take him. You know, it's you know that's horrible. So it's the first choice, evidently. And the girl says, "I'll take Charles Barkley." And Barkley's like, "Oh yeah." Yeah, I knew I still had it yeah I won. I knew she'd choose me and he goes on over there on six foot six 250 pounds and, and the, the the voiceover is like the easiest decision in the land of decisions it was an expected choice you look at that and say what idiot wouldn't choose Charles Barkley we think Joseph is Charles we think he's the one God's going to go to why Judah Judah is the completely unexpected choice. Leah, why Leah? Not seeing not her detached. She's the completely unexpected choice. Why this in the middle of Joseph's story? Because Judah is you. Judah is me. We are the unexpected choice. We are the ones not deserving of grace. We are the ones that have blown the opportunity And whether you're playing out as Leah and feel like it's because others have done that to you and and in your desperation you've looked for that fulfillment in other sources, you will never find it there until you find God and find your fulfillment in Him. There's no relationship, there's no circumstance that'll exist. You think you're not seen, not heard, and attached? Then you need to come to your Heavenly Father. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. You think you're Judah. You think you're on the outskirts of things. You think that you're fourth down the line and you don't matter, that, that you're just doing your own thing and that there are all these sin, all these things you've done that can never, ever put you back in the lineup of things. God's standing there. He says, no, I choose you. <laughs> Joseph, you mean Joseph. No, I choose you. Face your sin. Face your circumstances. Okay, Yeah not only is she, but practically everyone is more righteous than me. And we see a dramatic shift in Judah's character. No longer willing to sacrifice others for his own, but willing to sacrifice himself for his brother. Chapter 38 is you. It's God's way of trying to say to us it's not always what you think that I choose who I choose and that no matter what you've gone through no matter where you are I choose you it's not always the perfect and the best but it is those that are willing to be repentant and broken this morning in this place in this time in the few moments we have left I want you to understand this message I'm going to ask right now, could you just bow your head with me? Close your eyes for just a moment. And having respect for those around you, I want to speak to you today. Just quickly, in these closing moments, if, if you're one of those who, who just have not felt seen or heard, you've been out on relationships all your life, you're, you're wanting so much for something of like that, but you know you've been looking in the wrong direction. You know that you're putting that on somebody else or something else and not God. But this morning here, God's stirring your spirit. And you realize he does see you, he does hear you and you want to turn this around and you want to make him the fulfillment. You want to make him the focus of your life. If that's just you, just for a moment, no one looking around, please, just raise your hand before God quickly, before your father. I want to praise with you. I want to pray with you. Anyone else, just quickly. It's found in praise, folks. And then there's others of us in this room. We never thought we'd be in the front of things. We feel like we stumbled our way through life. We've, we've had our fill, but there's, there's, been a, there's been a separation between us and God. We look at the things that we've done. We're so quick to burn others. Gossip, slander. But God this morning is saying, no, it's you. You are the one. And you're willing to own that this morning whatever that may be, how you've treated other people, male or female, how you've rebelled, how you've handled your family, however it would be, but you're owning it this morning, you're owning that it's you and not anybody else. And you want to bring that repentance before God. Nobody looking around. Raise your hand quickly before God. Do it. Just raise it up. God changed you. His direction can change yours. Father, this morning we come before you and Lord, we bring our emptiness. We bring our detachment. We bring all the things that can't satisfy. We bring our sin and we bring our slander and gossip and all the other things we've done to pour out on others. But this morning, despite all those things like Judah, we just stand before you and say, it's, it's me. It's not my son. It's not my daughter. It's not my wife. It's not my husband. It's not my boss. It's not my, my, my mom and my dad. It's me. It's me. And I own that today and repent of that before you. I won't cower in my my quiet place and just feel sorry for myself. I'll I'll praise you. I will come out of the darkness and I will praise you. I'll not seek fulfillment elsewhere. I'll seek it in you. This morning, Lord, we are Judah. We are Leah. And we come before you, Lord. And this morning in this time, on this Sunday, we seek our fulfillment and you, Lord, meet us here, now, in this moment, I pray. In Jesus' name. Leah was the unexpected choice. The line of Christ came through her, not through Rachel. Judah was fourth on the list. But the line continued through him, not through Joseph. God chooses who he will, and he's chosen you. Father, I pray that you would guide us in these things, and that, Lord, we'd walk from this place with a deeper understanding of not only your grace, but of how we're to walk and to live that out. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would walk with each person present here, and especially, particularly for those who have not been or felt particularly seen or heard. We commit these things into your hands as your church. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.